You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. Good morning. So, I'm so glad to be with you this morning. My name is Mike LaRusso. I'm a pastor down at High River Baptist Church. So yes, I am a Baptist, but I appreciate the invitation to come and worship with you folks. Do you know how many Baptists it takes to change a light bulb? You know, anybody? Anybody? Enough to form a quorum, actually. We need <laughs> so anyway, no... Um, all joking aside, we're going to be in the book of 1 Thessalonians this morning. And so if you have your Bible, if you could make your way to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And once you get there, I'd ask if you just stand up with me and we'll read it. I'll read it and you can follow along once we get there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. This is what it says. It's the word of the Lord. Now concerning times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And while people are saying, there is peace and security, then Sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then... Let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk, are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, I ask that as we open up the word, your holy word, we would be listening to the word of the apostle, Lord, to your word, that the spirit himself would take the word and apply it to our hearts, that we would be different. Lord, we pray that while the whole world seems to be distracted, Lord, we would be a people, a sober people, <laughs> a people with resolute devotion to Christ, active and obedient at work, because the fields are white unto harvest, we pray that you would use us and by our means that many would hear and come to Christ and find him to be a perfect savior. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 to 11, Paul is dealing with the topic of the day of the Lord. 
in our current culture, in the current situation, there seems to be uh, a fascination with the end of the world. This is the big topic on, uh, for many uh, being discussed constantly. The end of the world. Uh, we've seen countless books. There seems to be movies cropping up on the shelves, each propagating their own picture of the end. And of course, this is actually nothing new. All throughout history, people have always tried to envision the end of all things, expressing a degree of curiosity about the question. This is not new. The end of the world has been a topic of discussion for centuries, and it was certainly for the Thessalonians as well. You see, everybody, every single person, whether they think about it self-consciously or not, everybody has an eschatology. An eschatology. That's just a 25-cent theological word for your doctrine of the future. Everybody has an eschatology. Everybody has a doctrine of the future. And some are a little bit more self-conscious about it, while others are... Are, are much less and just assume it as they carry on their lives. Some, um, likely the most popular view of the end in the West hails actually from the porch of the materialist philosophers of our day, those who believe that the only things that are real are actually material things, materialism. Mark Dever, he's a pastor and... Um, in uh, at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., he describes materialism this way. It is that he says, materialism is that stupid little philosophy in which people invest everything into what will eventually become nothing. <laughs> That's materialism. That stupid little philosophy in which people invest everything into that which will eventually become nothing. They believe life on the planet will come to an end through some impersonal, natural forces. Natural forces that do not make distinctions between the wicked and the righteous. Either an asteroid or perhaps a solar flare or maybe it is a virus that will come and utterly decimate the human race. Whatever it is, it will be a natural force, an impersonal force. And if the materialists are right, then it really doesn't matter how you live your life in the present. Everyone meets the same end, the, the, the wicked and the righteous. It's all the same end. You might as well have just lived for pleasure. You know, uh, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And if you're not satisfied with that, I suppose the alternative is despair. Utter despair. And so many in our world today have succumbed to despair. Why go on living if you're nothing but a meaningless cog in the machine. What is morality for a bag of organic matter as insignificant as a speck of dust floating towards disaster in some interstellar swirl left behind by a great cosmic accident? What is morality for such a thing? <laughs> you see, what you believe about the future has far-reaching implications into how you go about living your life in the here and now. That simple point underlines everything that the Apostle Paul is saying to us in this passage. Christians ought to live radically different lives from their unbelieving neighbors. Because not only do they believe 
that they will have to give an account to God. But they have hope of a bright future. We have an eschatology, and eschatology matters. What you teach and believe about the future matters. Oh, but it's just so controversial, many people say. <laughs> eschatology is just too controversial for us to teach it from the pulpit, and many churches today are not. Can I ask you a question? Can you point me in the direction of some bit of theology that somehow, some doctrine, some uh, matter of teaching in the Bible that's somehow not controversial? The more I read and study the word, the more I see that almost everything is laced with controversy and much discussion. The Thessalonians had all kinds of questions about the end. These were likely questions brought up by Paul's preaching. You see, Paul had preached to the Thessalonians when he was there visiting. Which likely set out the reality of the... In Paul's preaching, he likely set out the reality of the day of judgment and entrance into the kingdom of God as the lead edge of his preaching. In this way, he emulated John the Baptist, and he also emulated Jesus. You see, 1 Thessalonians, many believe, is the first book that Paul actually wrote, and all the fundamental pieces of his gospel are right here in this book. Listen to, listen to chapter 1, verses 9 to 10. This is what he says. For surrounding, for the surrounding peoples, he says, themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. This is when Paul and, and, uh, and his, his associates went to preach in Thessaloniki. They, he says that we, we heard concerning the, the, the reception we had among you and how you turned to God from Idols to serve the living and true God. And, he says, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Who's preaching like that today? Do you hear anybody preaching? Repent! <laughs> so you can escape the coming day of wrath. Such preaching is all too rare today, and yet it was characteristic of the apostles' preaching. You see, the end mattered for Paul. And how believers are related to that end was central to his gospel proclamation. Absolutely central. You see, having said that, I want you to follow along with me as I read the first few verses of our text. Paul says this, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So now, right out of the gate, we encounter a couple of theologically loaded phrases that are perhaps a bit difficult for us to grasp immediately. The first one is there in verse 1. He uses this phrase, times and seasons. Times and seasons. What are those? Well, times and seasons, they're used in Scripture. That phrase is used in Scripture to refer to the various epochs of human power. 
the various epochs of human power that will eventually give way to the time and season of God's kingdom. Jesus also uses this term, this, this phrase in Acts chapter, seven, Acts chapter 1, verse 7. He says, in reply to his disciples, they ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he says to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his authority. You see, the time and the season of God's kingdom rule is fixed by God, and it will certainly come. But God has not revealed exactly when. Matthew Henry chides his readers when he says this. He says, There are many things which our vain curiosity desires to know, which there is no necessity at all of our knowing, nor would our knowledge of them do us good. (laughs) Can you imagine what we would do as people if we knew the day when God's kingdom would come? How do you think we would live? You see, it would not be good for us to know. It's much better that we don't know. The next theologically loaded phrase that Paul uses is there in verse 2. He uses the phrase, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, which is a major theme of the Old Testament prophets. The day of the Lord. And they use it to describe events where God shows up. He shows up. In judgment, and he shows up in salvation. We've got a few examples of these recorded for us in the Bible. The flood is one of them. You see, in the flood, God steps into history in his awesome glory, and he brings judgment upon sinners. But even as he judges some, he's saving others at the very same time, like Noah and his family. We see another example in the Exodus where God delivers his people from Egypt. He shows up and he parts the sea and he drowns Pharaoh's army in the sea and delivers his people safe on the other side. These and other similar historical events are all meant to point us forward to the great day of judgment to come. They picture it for us in a way. The Lord told Zephaniah, the prophet Zephaniah, in Zephaniah chapter one, verses two to three, a little bit of what that day would be like. He said, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. This is the day of the Lord. That day will be a day of destruction. It will be a day of of darkness, a day of thick cloud when the light of the sun is blotted out and the Lord shakes the whole earth. It will be in that day as though the very fabric of creation were coming apart at the seams. It is the day of the Lord. You see, the day of the Lord is a disruptive, theophonic intrusion of the glory of God into the world. It signals both the change in times and seasons and the very coming of the glorious kingdom of God into the world. And Paul stresses the sudden nature of its coming. He stresses the sudden nature of it by quoting Jesus' Olivet Discourse where he says, the day 
of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And the whole point of the analogy of the thief is that you don't know when the thief is coming. Have any of you ever received a phone call maybe in the last week that you know that there's a thief maybe breaking into your house right now? He called you and warned you, said maybe this day on such and such a month at 3.30 in the afternoon, I'm going to be there. (laughs) Thieves don't do that. They come suddenly. They come when you least expect it. In Matthew 24, Jesus spoke about what the day of the Lord would look like. It would encompass a series of events that would each fall upon the unsuspecting world suddenly. And then it would culminate and build up to the point where it would, we would see the descent of the Son of Man from heaven. There will be false Christs and wars and rumors of wars and famine and earthquake. And all of these, Jesus says, are but the beginning of birth pains. You see, Paul picks up this language too in verse 3. He says, sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Jesus makes the same point. He says that concerning that day and hour, no one knows in Matthew 24, verse 36. Nobody knows when it's going to begin, when that day is going to come. Nobody knows, despite the many attempts of some to guess and to set dates And these men and many women also have just done nothing but brought scorn upon themselves and upon the church of God when they continue to set these dates. If you think you know the date, please just step back and consider this one question. Are you smarter than Jesus? Because he says he didn't know. And so if you know what he doesn't know, then you must be smarter than him. And sit there and let that sink in and hopefully it'll drive you to humility and to stop setting dates. Just a couple of things about birth pains I want to mention. I've personally never felt birth pains. I've had gout before. They say that's pretty bad. Comparable to birth pains. Although, you know... Well, my wife is right there, and now I'm going to get in trouble after because I, I, I made the, I did the, the heinous, unspeakable sin of, of, of equating gout to birth pains. I've experienced gout, and I've experienced birth pain, or have not experienced birth pains. My wife has, and I've watched. We have four children. I've watched over the years. First, I want you to know I've been able to pick up a few things. That first, they don't come, or sorry, they do come suddenly, <laughs> and rarely on schedule. I still remember getting a phone call. I was at an elders retreat up in uh, just north of Red Deer. And I got a phone call. And it was uh, my wife. And our first son was going to be (laughs) delivered. He came suddenly, unexpectedly, a couple of weeks early, actually. And he was in birth at the Olds Hospital. And one of our elders was driving me to meet another pastor friend of mine in Olds at, uh, at Red Deer, at the at Gasoline Alley there. And the whole way, we're getting to the, the pickup spot in Gasoline Alley. This one elder is telling me, you know what, Mike? It's probably just false labor. It probably, she's probably you know, just fine and it's going to stop and then you can call me and I'll come pick you up later on tonight. How's that? And I was like, yeah, okay. Like, Never done this before. Yeah, sure, yeah. And then I got in the car with, um, it was Pastor Andy Moffat. I don't know if any of you know him. He's at the Baptist church here. <laughs> and, 
And I told Andy, I said, yeah, it's probably not happening. It's probably just uh, false labor. And Andy said, well, what did Missy tell you? And I told him what she said, what she said and how far along things were. And he said, he looked over at me and he said, Mike, it's happening. <laughs> it's happening, whether you like it or not. And so they come suddenly, and once they start, there is no escaping them. The baby is here. And so a few months ago, when Missy woke up, not a few months ago, this is actually a couple years ago now, Missy woke up in the middle of the night. She's nine months pregnant with our fourth child, little Anna Lee, little baby girl. She woke up in the middle of the night, and she's, she told me, I think we have to go to the hospital. Anna Lee is here. Um, and it was probably at that point foolish for me to roll over and snag an extra 15 minutes of sleep. Even as it was foolish for me to ask if on the way to the hospital I should stop and grab a cup of coffee for us as we made it to the hospital. We made it to the hospital and about 40 minutes later uh, she came. She was there. I was holding her in my arms. They come. And when they start, there is no escape. Birth pains continue and they escalate and they become increasingly painful, but they eventually bring forth the child. And in this case, these birth pains bring forth the kingdom of God. This is the picture that the apostle is giving to us the birthing of the kingdom of God into the world. Like Jesus before him, Paul teaches that there are no signs that precede the day of the Lord. There's no signs that tell us when that day is going to come. It comes suddenly. It comes like a thief. It will come when people least expect it. It will come when people are saying, there is peace and there is security. About a decade ago, there was a special ad campaign put together by Arian Sharan and, and uh, Richard Dawkins in partnership with the British Humanist Association. They launched this media campaign to put a bunch of signs, as many signs up all over uh, the city of London, on buses, on billboards, everywhere they possibly could, that read like this. This is what these signs said. There probably is no God. <laughs> now stop worrying and enjoy your life. You see, this is nothing but a prophecy of peace. Prophecy of peace where there is no peace. And these sorts of things are nothing but feeble attempts. Feeble attempts of unbelievers at suppressing and silencing the voice of their conscience that all men have and they hear and they know when they sit alone in silence, they know that there is a God. And even in the midst of their greatest efforts to block up their ears, that day will find them. Having spoken plainly about the coming day of the Lord, Paul now gets down to brass tacks and the number of implications for his readers. He says this. He begins to draw, draw out a couple of major contrasts between believers and unbelievers. Look down at verse 4. He says, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Pay attention to the pronouns in these verses. For you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. You see, Paul isn't saying that the Thessalonians had some kind of inside track and they knew when the day would take place. Rather, when the day comes... They should have no cause for concern because they're ready, you see. They're ready for that day. They're ready in the first place because they've been enlightened. 
They've been enlightened. The, the blinders had fallen off of their eyes like great scales. All of the devices that they once used to suppress the truth of God and his kingdom had been undone. They had been awakened now to the spiritual realities around them and they were now looking out on the world as it were with new eyes. This is what the Bible calls the miracle of illumination. Like many people today, they used to think of the world in such a way that kept God on the outside. There was no room for some transcendent, personal God intervening in the human experience. That was a repulsive thought, and so they tried various ways of putting it out of their minds. But when the old hostilities had been removed by God's Spirit, they could see. They could finally see. See as clear as day. They could see. What could they see? They could see simply this, that this world, brothers and sisters, this world is not all that there is. You see, there is a better world that is coming. And Paul calls them children of light, children of the day. The prophet Isaiah described the day of the Lord as a day of judgment and a day of great darkness. But in other places, he speaks of the day of the Lord as though it were an age of light, an age of peace. Listen to Isaiah 60, verses 1 to 3. It says this, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has arisen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. The nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. And then in Isaiah 60 verses Verse 19, we read this, the sun shall be no more your light by day for your brightness shall, sorry, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light. Your God will be your glory. And so while it is true that the day of the Lord begins as a day of great darkness, A day of terrible judgment. The darkness eventually gives way to an age of perpetual light. An age of endless day. And that way it kind of follows the, the same pattern as a Jewish day. Does anybody know when a Jewish day begins? It actually begins when the sun goes down, begins in darkness, then it issues forth in light. Here's the point. Paul identifies his readers as belonging to that glorious age of light. You see, your identity, who you are, is not rooted in anything you were before he found you. They belong to the world that is to come. You have been embraced by the light. And God has made you an instrument of his mercy. You belong to the age of light. Even as you yet exist for a time in this present evil age. The age of light had dawned with the first coming of Jesus. And that's what we just finished celebrating, isn't it? At Christmas. Light has shone into the world, into the darkness. Jesus himself says this in John 12, 36. He says, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light or children of light. 
light. You see, we do not belong to this age of darkness. We belong to the age of light to come. This identity then as children of light serves as the foundational structure for all of the moral instruction that Paul now gives to his his hearers. Look down at verse 6. He says this, So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be Sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Children of light don't wander around aimlessly, ignorant of the day. They don't live as though they were practical atheists, as though this world is all that there is. They aren't all wrapped up in the cares and the concerns of this life, giving little thought to the coming day of the Lord. They aren't intoxicated by all the things that this life and this world has to offer, lulled to sleep by worldly comforts and hopes. No. That is how the people of this age live. Children of the day, however, are alert. Children of the day are watchful. They are sober. Sober. You know, sobriety is not a virtue that our current culture values very much at all, is it? Sobriety. To be alert. To be in your right mind, paying attention. And sadly, over the last nearly two years now, the church seems to have been completely distracted, haven't we? We're not sober. We're completely distracted by the current health crisis, aren't we? It has become the main, central, driving focus of everything that we talk about. And sadly, the gospel, the glory of Christ, has been pushed to the periphery of our life and witness. This is a great evil. You see, what Paul is calling for us here is a sense of militant watchfulness over our hearts and minds. He's calling us to a sense of militant watchfulness over our hearts and minds and an expectant readiness that marks the whole of our lives. Elsewhere, Paul says this, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. And Jesus warns us, listen to what Jesus says, but watch yourselves. Or be sober, lest your heart be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. Listen, every day you will face a barrage of obstacles, of distractions, Things that will seek to keep you tethered to this world and distracted. All the various treasures of this world call out to you every day. And if you're not careful, they'll numb your senses and they'll kill your desires for heaven. And Satan wants nothing more than to have you Find all of your security, all of your hope, all of your desires met in this world. He wants to have you happy and comfortable and at ease in this world. 
living out some kind of a baptized version of the American dream. That's where he wants you. This is how he decimates our witness. Satan decimates the witness of the church by distraction. This world will seek to quiet all of your fears by offering you all kinds of hope in other places, in government, in medicine, in wealth, in good circumstances, in status. And the list could go on and on. See to it, beloved, see to it that your hope, your confidence is in Christ and in him alone. Let Christian faith, love, and hope rooted in reality as defined by the Bible, the real world, the way it really is, let these things act like strong plates of armor to protect you while you enter the fray of this great struggle of the children of light day after day after day. My prayer for the church in Canada is that our lives together as a people would testify to the watching world that Jesus is the all-satisfying, listen, he is the all-satisfying, precious treasure that the Bible reveals him to be and that there is a better world, friends. There is a better world that is coming. I pray that the way, just the way that we live, people would see that, they would taste that and know that. Can you imagine what this community would be like if we all just did that? In the final few verses, Paul actually grounds everything he has to say, everything he's already said, he grounds it now in the cross. He grounds it in the very work of Christ. Pick it up in verse 9. This is what he says. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing. You see, this is the very bedrock of our hope, isn't it? The only ground upon which we can stand, the very reason we've been able to be called children of God, children of light, in the first place, all centers around Jesus. It all centers around what his death accomplished, what he did at the cross. You see, there are some today who, are like, who would like nothing more than to do away with this notion of a wrathful God. They might be tempted to read verse 9 as though the apostle were saying that God has no wrath. <laughs> That's why you don't got to be worried about it because he has no wrath. Which would show their ignorance of the whole passage. There is such a thing as the coming day of wrath. It is coming. Nothing will stop it. What Paul means to say is that there is a coming day of wrath, but we who believe have not been destined for it. The decision has been made by God. It is fixed. We have not been destined for wrath. It's a fixed decision of God. But how does Paul claim to know the destiny of those he's speaking to? How does he know that they've been destined this way? The answer is actually found in chapter 1, verses 4 to 7. Paul says to them there, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. He's chosen you. Paul is saying that he knows that the Thessalonians were sovereignly chosen by God and thus destined for salvation. Well, how? How? How do you know that, Paul? How do you know? And keep reading. He says this, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You see, when Paul preached the gospel to them, 
the Spirit working with the Word brought about full conviction of sin. And let's go on. He says, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for you, your, for, among you for your sakes, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. You see, they received the word with joy, despite the fact that it meant suffering for affliction, in affliction. All of these are marks of genuine conversion. They're marks of God's electing grace. Paul witnessed these marks, and he declares then with confidence to these brothers and sisters, you are chosen. You have been destined for salvation. I know you're elect. Look at all of the evidence. See, back in chapter 5, verse 9 then. They are not destined for wrath, but for salvation or deliverance from the wrath to come. How? How are they... How are they going to be delivered? Well, Paul's already mentioned that, how their deliverance comes about in chapter 4. How believers are delivered from the day of God's wrath. He says in chapter 4, verses 16, 17, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the cloud to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord, he says. You see, this is true. However, it serves here in this passage as the ground. Even this hope is what we read about in chapter 5, verses 9 to 10. The salvation comes through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. You see, the cross was the place where Christ absorbed the wrath of God that was against sinners, that was against us. If you trust in Christ, the cross means that there is no more wrath for you because it has been poured out on Christ. You see, in a very real way, the day of the Lord, and I need you to listen very carefully here. This is very important. In a very real way, the day of the Lord has already come in advance, as it were, at the cross. It fell on Christ on behalf of all those who are his. Indeed, this is why we read about the hours of darkness that covered the earth when Christ hung upon the cross. We read about the earthquake and the ground shaking. All of this is language that comes straight out of the Old Testament that describes the day of the Lord's judgment. The wrath of God was satisfied at the cross. The cross is the most clear display of God's judgment and salvation. The cross assures us that when that day comes, we will receive a warm welcome and inherit mercy instead of judgment. Paul, argue, or Paul urges us to encourage and to build one another up then with these things. You see, quite often the trite little sympathy cards, the kind words that we hope will encourage our brothers and sisters they often ring hollow, don't they? They ring hollow. But you have the most encouraging words right with you in your lap, if what happens to be in your lap is this book. So take the words of God, take up this book, and apply them, apply these words like a soothing balm and rub them into the wounds of your brothers and sisters when they're hurting when they're afraid, when they're discouraged, when they've lost seemingly everything, when all hope is crushed, take the words of God, encourage your brothers and sisters, 
Everything else we could say, all the kind words, all the best wishes in the world are nothing but straw when we compare them to this powerful word. Does your life show the watching world around you that your hope is centered in Christ? Does what you value, how you live, the very heartbeat and rhythm of your life make it plain to the watching world that there is a better world to come? Brother and sister, have you been distracted? Have you been swept up into the panic of the current situation? Take this word and apply it to your heart today and this will make all the difference brother and sister will make all the difference in this new year 2022 as it approaches let's pray together father your word is truth we would plead with your spirit that he would take the word and would sanctify the hearts of your people father there are so many things that seek to distract us, seek to take us away from what our focus ought to be. Father, I pray for your people here gathered today that they would be marked by sobriety. They would be focused on the mission of the gospel. Father, that these dear brothers and sisters would know the hope that awaits all those who put their trust in Christ, it's grounded, rooted in what he accomplished at the cross. They would cling to this hope in a way that helps them to weather every, every storm that they could ever find themselves in. They would also hold it out as hope for the nations that they would come and know and receive Christ and be saved in him. We pray for this in Jesus' name.